What's going on, everybody? Taylor here, uh, bringing you episode 17 of the Mental Dive podcast. Um, you know, it's it's been a crazy last two, three weeks, hasn't it? Um, I'm not going to dive too deep into the whole coronavirus pandemic going on. I'm, I'm trying to get away from it a bit, uh, you know, just trying to deconnect and yeah, not look too, too much into the media. It's, it's important to keep up and to keep, keep and stay informed. However, when it's in your ears, you know, 24 hours a day, it's it gets a little much so in saying that i want to start the podcast off by just giving a quick tip um something that's helped me so far with handling this whole covid19 pandemic and so for me i'm, I'm from bolton ontario canada as some of you may know and i'm fortunate enough to live in an area where there's not uh it's not very populated so in saying that it, it gives me the opportunity to to go outside and not have to worry about a lot of people being around me and so what I've been doing is is I've I've been going outside, whether it's playing basketball, going for a walk, just you have to get out of the house for a bit. As long as it's safe to do so and you know you don't have any governmental restrictions uh, on going outside, then you know, get outside, get moving. Because as I'm sure a lot of you know, staying inside all day can be very difficult. Difficult for your physical health, your mental health, a lot of different things. So for me it's all really about deconnecting. You know, if you go for a walk, the weather's nice and safe. Go for a walk, deconnect. Don't look at your phone. You know, maybe put on some your favorite music before you go. Don't look at your phone. Be mindful. Just enjoy it. Try to deconnect from everything that's going on. That's something that's really helped me. But anyway, so let's let's get away from the COVID nineteen uh, stuff for now. Today's podcast, I have a really really cool guest. Uh, to to share, his name's Rob Shrimp. So, if you're uh, if you've been a hockey fan for the last little while, you likely know who Rob Shrimp is. Uh, very very talented hockey player. He's retired now. He played around 15 years of pro hockey, and this was a mix of the NHL, the AHL, you know, overseas, the KHL, Swedish Hockey League, and you know, a ton of other pro leagues. And Rob was kind enough to share his time. And to come on my podcast and to talk about um, his career and some things that make made Rob a really interesting individual to interview was his whole mindset around practice and making the most of your opportunities. So let's get into that a bit. Give you a little teaser for now. When you have a practice, whether you're on the ice, you're on the pitch wherever you're at home even you want to practice uh to full of your abilities if you want to practice with a purpose and you want to improve and you want to see your results transition and your performance transition for that matter from your practice into a game scenario you have to try to make that practice as similar as possible to the game situation So what does that mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean giving 50%. It doesn't mean giving 75%. If you want to be the best you can be and be a high performer and achieve your peak performance potential, you have to work as hard in practice as you would in a game. Because guess what? If you don't, there's going to be someone out there who is and Rob talks about this 
on the podcast. He talks about how he would try to get creative in practice so he'd see that transfer into games. He wouldn't try to be complacent in practice. He's trying to separate himself. And that's one of the things that separates the good from the great. The great being the ones who give that full effort in practice. The great being those who are willing to go outside their comfort zone in order to improve and make those mistakes along the way. But don't take it from me. Take it from an OHL first overall pick. A guy who's won OHL and CHL scoring titles. A CHL champion. A Memorial Cup champion. An NHL first round pick by the Edmonton Oilers. A guy who's been there. A guy who's played in the NHL. A guy who's played 15 years pro. So without further ado, let's get into the dive. So hello, hello everybody. And today I have the pleasure of being joined by Rob Schrempf. Rob, how you doing? Great. I appreciate you having me on, buddy. Oh, thanks, Rob. I appreciate you taking the time. It's, it's awesome. Uh, so, so, Rob, uh, what, how about we start off by you telling me a little bit about yourself, and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, so, I'm a former professional hockey player. I played uh, roughly 15 years uh, pro. Um, have since transitioned out of the game and have been working in the, in the healthcare space as well. I've uh, been doing a lot of advocacy for mental health. Um, also working with, uh, I have a, a building out, uh, building out a platform for, uh, coaching online coaching, um, to circle back into the hockey space and kind of my own, uh, avenue, so to speak. And, um, you know, that's what I'm up to now. I'm a father of a two-year-old daughter and a husband of a Latvian wife. Okay, Rob. So how about we start from, from, uh, from a young age? So, you know, you're the first overall pick to Mississauga Ice Dogs. Uh, in the OHL and you know you tr- you came from the states what was that transition like for you initially when you came from the USA coming to Canada it was um you know I wouldn't say it was such a shock in the sense of the hockey part of it but living wise right it's totally different uh culture and uh, mentality not in a bad way but you know just different you know f- just turned 16 years old um moving away from mom and dad you know there's a lot of things that go into it you know other than just you know the Big picture, or the, the I should say, the small picture is you're just excited to go play hockey. But then once you get there, you get a bill family, mm-hmm. and you know you're in Canada, and um, now you're on their turf, so to speak. Because a lot of things growing up, it's always like USA versus Canada. You know what I mean? It's always yeah. like that little rivalry. When we went up to this, you know, to Canada as the states team, it was always that. And then, I mean, there always will be that. Uh, you see it with the women's, you know, Olympic, the men's Olympic, all the, you know, men and women, when they go and play, there's a rivalry there. So mm-hmm. to go into their turf and play in their league was, you know, a little bit intimidating. Um, I played in the OPJHL Ontario Provincial when I was 14 and 15. So it gave me, but I was playing out of the States, right? Like I got to live at home. Yeah. Oh, you're playing junior That's right. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I understood that's what I mean. So as far as the hockey part, it wasn't like, oh, what am I going to get? Like, I knew what the OHL was, and I knew what Canada hockey was like. So that wasn't the mm-hmm. issue. It was just, uh, you know, more or less just moving up there and being part of the living in that country. It was, was more of an adjustment, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. So what were some of the pressures you felt, you know, being a first overall pick and, and moving to the, to the OHL? Um, you got a lot of eyeballs on you, and it's not always some good, some bad, you know, some of it's a lot of it at that time, if I can, you know, kind of think back in my memory and it was a lot of like, let's see if this American can play kind of thing. You know what I mean? And they're mm-hmm. like cocky American. That's, you know, the tag you usually get as a high end skill guy as an American is, is the flair and the cockiness is, is one thing. And that kind of, as you know, like I said, you're going to Canada's culture. It's a very modest country. Uh, people are very modest and humble. 
the states are much different. It's very braggalicious, and you got you when you feel like you're doing well, it's more showboat. So it was a lot of eyeballs, I think, and um, you know the pressure was there for sure. And, but the thing for me, I was fortunate enough is Patrick Wilson the year before was an American pick first overall. Oh so right, kind of yeah. Broke the ice down a little bit and let him take some of it. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? yeah. <laughs> so I didn't. It wasn't totally. Uh, you know what I mean? It wasn't totally on me, but uh, yeah, there's some pressure there. And obviously, you're, you know, you're getting close to your dream of the NHL and, and your goal of the NHL. So there's some pressure to, to perform and, uh, and that's a great league. So it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then, so you go through your rookie season and after that, you know, it's, it's the big year. That's your first year of eligibility for the NHL draft. Um, what was, what was that season like for you as you reflect and what were some of the bigger bigger things you learned as you um, went across your draft season and into the draft i had a very stormy draft draft year you know i got traded out of uh, mississauga was an awkward scenario where the ownership changed over the summer Mm -hmm. and the new people that came along were really just very confrontational with my family and i and i didn't like it and it was tough because it was draft year so we felt a lot of pressure to be in the right spot in a good spot so when it started off with rocky waters uh, we made the decision. We're like, I, I couldn't fathom playing there for another seven months and being able mm-hmm. to focus on the draft, which maybe wasn't such a big deal. Maybe at that time, if that's probably one of my biggest regrets was was that situation. And that kind of really put up, as I mentioned before already, there's eyeballs on you as a first overall mm-hmm. an American. And then you, you know, you ask for a trade out of a spot really brings up red flags, uh, really brought a target on my back and I went to London and, um, you know, I never really recouped from the, the bad rap of like demanding a trade, but you know, the scenarios behind the scene were just absolutely bananas. So mm-hmm. it was a very tough year for me mentally because I was kind of, I felt like I was doing the right thing. Getting someone treats you a certain way, you either stand up for yourself or you cower to it. And we stood mm-hmm. up and, and that's what it was. But it was viewed in a different scenario where it's more like a punk or a problem child. You know, what's, why would you demand a trade? Um, yeah kind of trying to fight that stigma or that whatever that cloud was a little bit tough and also you're like man it's my draft you're like this is what you build up for your whole life mm. like this is what's how it's going like this is brutal yeah like, <laughs> like you're trying to play in the nhl next year man, yeah yeah like you're thinking like that yeah, and then unrealistic or not but that is your dream you're like i'm mm-hmm. gonna make it at 18 if you don't have that ambition then i i mean nobody really says oh i'm gonna i'm gonna play in the nhl when i'm 31 uh <laughs> you know it's usually like you want to get there as fast as possible and like mm-hmm. prove your abilities uh, so that was a rough year and it was a lot. I learned a lot from it for sure. Growing forward. And, you know, now that I'm older reflecting back, it's, you know, you can take away and, you know, I made mistakes for sure. Maybe it could have sucked it up a little longer, but, uh, it really did pull me back uh, a little bit behind the eight ball with, with pulling that move. And especially in such a pivotal year. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that none was, you know, top prospects game came around. That was, it was great. It was right in London. Great experience getting to meet the other picks that were going to be coming up and, other players and see what their abilities were and their, you know, their strengths were and what I was up against, so to speak. That top prospects game is a real indicator of, you know, your draft class kind of thing and where you stand going forward as far as the, you know, CHL market stands because it's all the kids, top 40 ranked kids um, go to that prospects game. So it's really, it was a cool experience. And then having it in London was awesome as well. The fans there are amazing and it was great support. So there was some good and some bad during the year, mm-hmm. you know, ups and downs, but um, it was interesting for sure. Right. So that, that brings me to, to think, um, did you ever have to talk to the scouts about why you uh, demanded a trade? 
Yeah, I, I had to, conversations. I had to go to the combine. Well, not I had to. I got. I was, you know, fortunate enough, and it was awesome to go to the combine. You're you're mm-hmm. ranked inside the top hundred kids, and uh, a lot of it was, you know, for me, is it was a lot of the draft year was rough, buddy. <laughs> like really rough because mm-hmm. I got in some of these meetings and they asked why, and I also had an issue, uh, you know, during the playoffs. I got benched for a whole series. Really, like I played under under a minute each game for like six really? games on seven, and it was uh, literally Dale Hunter was just trying to teach me how to play and. Uh, wanted to nail a point home at all costs and it was for the better of my career and better for my player development but um, going into draft year that's you know they see it as another way and obviously having that already tagged from the draft from the demanded trade then you got a benching it was a lot of questions and a lot of character questions and you know when I gave the answers about there's more about the you know when I talked about the leaving and asking to be traded thing okay makes sense and then when I started talking about, you know, why I got, you know, not played, that was more they started questioning whether I was telling the truth or not. <laughs> and mm-hmm. that pinned me into a corner of like fight or flight kind of thing. and really bugged me to, to have that character judgment. And, you know, when you get back into a corner, I don't know. For me, I fight. So I fell mm-hmm. back into a corner with those kind of questions. When I when I answered the questions, it was like, oh, well, we don't believe you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that was like. I didn't know how to handle that. So I would have handled that a lot better if I was to look back and make some tweaks to it. If you get the old, if you could go back and change anything. Yeah. Um, for sure. Would have answered those questions differently and not got so defensive and been pissed off by them. I would have maybe just thought of them like, Oh, these guys are playing mind games. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know that, but at 17, 18, you're young, confident and kind of the, you know, you want to challenge me, I'll come back kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Some people like that mentality and some others didn't. And I think that really played a role in my draft stock. So mm-hmm. uh, really, yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, 100%. And so, you know, even after all that adversity uh, throughout the year, you still end up being a first-round pick, which is a great accomplishment in itself. Um, so then as you moved into your next year, you know, like you said, you had kind of this tag on you, you know, that you're, you know, maybe seen as cocky or, or demanding and whatnot. And then now you're still a first-round pick. Did you feel like people are kind of like out to get you in a sense then? It's like, it's like, oh, like this, this guy can act this way, so to say, is what they perceive and then still go first round. And, you know, you're playing for London and people kind of like to pick on London a bit. Like what, what was your, your draft plus one year like from that perspective? The year after I got drafted. Uh, so there was the, that was the lockout year, I believe. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that was the lockout year. So uh, no chance to really go and make a team. Um, a lot to prove for me as far as, you know, I knew what was floating around my head. It was not, it wasn't, uh, didn't take a brain surgeon to figure out what was tagged to me. And also being a draft pick with the ranking, I was ranked a certain number inside top 10 and I went 25 and it was a lot of like, you know, buzz about what, so I had a lot of things to prove and, and draft year after draft year was, we went back to London and I just had a lot to prove and we ended up winning a championship there. I played really good Mm -hmm. hockey. So to Dale's point of proving a point, uh, it worked. (laughs) Yeah. I wound up, you know, second in scoring in the OHL playoffs, only behind Corey Perry. And I, and I had a really good Memorial cup and helped the team Mm -hmm. win a championship and, uh, knew played the right way and was, you know, uh, a much different player. So mm-hmm. it's all about when you get those lessons, do you learn from them or do you still fight against them? And, and that was my year to prove, you know, I learned my lesson and take some humble pie and, and play the right way and, and be a team guy. And that's, that's important. So a lot of good things came out of it. Um, and it really was awesome to have that reflection right when you get drafted, 
all that kind of negativity, go the next year and be on a championship team and actually a team that just wound up being uh, considered the team of the century mm-hmm. uh, to be a big piece of that puzzle was, you know, that was important for me and mm-hmm. uh, didn't let really let it drag me the wrong way. I used it for fuel and kind of knowing that I probably should have shut my mouth to the draft meetings. You had a little bit of, like I said, humble pie. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I went, you know, almost 15 spots down from where I was projected and that, and you know, at the time also you put so much on that because it's competitiveness, right? Like you go to that prospects game and you're like, I want, I'm better than this guy or Mm -hmm. I want to be better than this guy. I want to be the best. And that's a mentality. I think most, if you want to be an elite athlete, that's what it takes is is to want to be better than the next. It's not, Mm. Oh, this is cute and fun. Let's all just go have fun together. It's lit- you're out there to compete and be better than the next guy so you can make it. Mm. So that that really when I like I said, still first rounder, but like sliding down the draft was kind of an eye opener. And then being able to go out the next year and prove, you know, that I could play the right way and, and be a team guy and do what it took to win a championship was what I felt I needed to do and execute it on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you, so you mentioned this guy named named Corey Perry. I don't know. I heard he's pretty good. I, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. yeah. What what was it like playing with with guys like Corey Perry in junior? And what do you think made guys like Corey Perry so successful, not only at the junior level but as they transitioned into pro? Yeah, Corey was exciting to be around. You know, the first year I got there at 17, he was just a, you know pretty good player, but just nothing like off the radar. And then. He got, uh, you know, confidence or whatever, whatever he did, put in some work in the offseason. His 19-year-old year was, like, unbelievable, like night and day. He, he went from a okay player to a monster, like, as far as compete. He was, he was the best player in the league, and he was driven, too. I think his draft status, same thing, compete. He was, you know, 25. I think he was the same pick number, and I think that put fire in his belly. And uh, the Mem Cup year, he was an absolute stud. Uh, watched him in game in, game out. Watched him every day at practice, putting in the work, uh, work with a purpose. Uh, he was just so mentally focused. He was very focused. A lot of routines he'd get into, and it was almost like OCD stuff. <laughs> but, uh, okay, you know, like did superstitious? It every night. Oh, my God, he did so much crap. Well, uh, what, what could you name one of them? Could I don't you remember know what he wants to be talking about. Oh, okay, just, fair, fair, enough, know, fair enough. He had his little thing, but he did them every night. You know, and every mm-hmm. night he showed up. So who's the judge? You know, it's one thing if a guy's spending a half an hour with his rituals and goes out and gets one shot on net. But this guy had rituals. He'd go out and put up a goal and four apples or three mm-hmm. goals and two. You know what I mean? Like he came and, and performed. So whatever it was that got him mentally focused was working very well for him. And that carried over into his NHL career, uh, winning a Rocket Richard, a Hart Trophy, Stanley Cup. I think he's one of the, you know, one of very few men who've won uh, five of this championships olympics world championships world juniors mm-hmm. memorial cup and stanley cup so uh, it speaks volumes of his focus and his ability to compete and show up and mm-hmm. i got to be a part of that for one of those championships which was a you know a huge honor and it was exciting to watch so it was really cool to be a teammate with Corey. Mm-hmm. absolutely and so throughout your junior career you know uh, as we as you move into the next year uh and you had that monster year what was 145 points yeah my last year yeah yeah so were you expecting to make the nhl that year or were you kind of expecting to go back to junior and just have one more year of development for, before making the transition to pro uh, you know to be honest with you i really thought i made the team um very i put on a very good effort and played well in camp and there was a lot of buzz around like almost how could i not make the team 
I remember getting a phone call week before camp was over saying, uh, you know, you got to do something this week or they're going to be sending you back to junior. And I was almost shocked, uh, mm-hmm. really shocked because I thought I did what I needed to do to be there. So I was pissed off when I got sent down, to be honest with you. I was really upset. And uh, I think it showed in my game. I went down and wind up putting up like 50 points in the first 10 games or somewhere along the lines of that and was like kind of proven a point of like, why am I here? Yeah. Uh, not nothing against London Knights. They love being in London and I loved, you know, we had a great team and a great group of guys, but like my goal was NHL. And I thought I did what it took to make it that year mm-hmm. and didn't get, didn't get to there. And I was going to then use that for fuel. And I did, and it just put up and I wasn't going to stop and just try to put up as many points as possible to make a point of why am I here? Mm-hmm. Um, whether, you know, I don't know. It was the fuel, I guess. And I thought it was personally, I, I think it would have been, I was ready, and then, you know, it just that's the way she goes. <laughs> yeah, I got no other way, no other else to say. But I was kind of shocked because my 19-year-old training camp was very solid, and I, I played very well in the camps and the preseason games. I mean, never was I a fitness t- uh, testing guy. I didn't ever blew those off the charts. But as far mm-hmm. as quarterback and a power play, putting up points and making stuff happen five on five, I thought I did a really good job, and. Uh, just thought I could. That was the year I was going to transition in the show, and it didn't work out. So, but like you said, I went back to junior, and we had a great group there with David Bowen, Dylan Hunter, Sergey Kuznetsov, uh, AJ Perry, to name a few. Adam Dennis, um, kind of lost a ton of guys from the year before in the Mem Cup year. You have that turnover, so mm-hmm. it was really on us. And we went up getting all the way back to the conference finals. Uh, sorry, the, the league finals. We lost to Peterborough. Um, almost had another chance going for a Mem Cup. So. It, it turned out to be a good year, but in the beginning, I, was, I just was really fiery from not making it. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like it was? Did you feel like the challenge wasn't large enough for you in junior? Like you would have been better suited to be more challenged at the NHL uh, level? Um, yeah, for sure. For sure, I think it was time for me to progress, and that was mm-hmm. more of a stagnant year. And fun, I mean, it's fun having a year like that for sure. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, uh, at the end of the day, when you're trying to always be better and get better. Um, that's, I didn't really need to go there and put up 145 points, but you know what I mean? Like, I think it would have been more, it would have been better, more beneficial for my game to progress and, and learn what the next level took. So you don't get that playing, you know, and there's a lot, the other thing is there's rule changes and all that stuff came into play. So it was a lot, it was a way different game, wide open, a lot mm-hmm. of power plays. Um, so wait, what were the rule changes? That was after the lockout, so a lot of the hooking, holding, everything that was a hook and a hold and a slash was called. Oh, right. Whereas the year we won the Mem Cup, it was two line passes, and, I mean, you could basically maul anybody you wanted, <laughs> <laughs> which, we'd had, which we had to in the year before Mem Cup to with Sidney Crosby. I think Brandon Prost and Dylan Hunter stuck by his side the whole time, didn't let him get a stride off in the final game. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rules changed, and, and they opened the game up wide open, so that was the other thing. I think that skill, my my skill level, I probably should have ended up in the, with the, helping the NHL team with their power play. But like I said, things go the way they go. <laughs> it's out of my yeah. control. And just uh, enjoyed my last year there and, and had a really good time in London. The Hunters were great, great people. And uh, the team we had was a good group. We went on won a ton of games. We only lost 13 games, I think, that last, that last year. So mm-hmm. we were winning on a nightly basis. That's always fun in front of fans, 10,000 fans every night. Yeah, pretty cool scenario to go back to. And so, and so the next year, you know, you transitioned to pro hockey and you end up playing your first NHL game. What was that experience like for you finally uh, 
you know, achieving a goal. I'm sure you, you dreamed of as, uh, since you were a kid. It was, yeah, it was great. I mean, I was, I got a phone call and we were on the road and I thought it was Dennis Bonvey screwing with me. So oh, oh. <laughs> Todd Richards, the coach called me. He's like, I mean, cause it was towards the end of the season too. Right. So like all year long, obviously was itching for that call. And I mean, you get to like January, February, like, okay, I guess I'm not getting a game or any games. Mm-hmm. And I got a call, like, I think it was in March. So we were on the road in Norfolk, I believe it was. And answer and it was like shrimpy get your stuff you're getting called up and i i said you know i used some profanity and i was like whatever bonds screw off oh <laughs> to the coach the yeah he called <laughs> back like two seconds later and i answered again i was like bones go whatever and he's like shrimpy is coach it's todd richards pack your bags you got called up i was like oh uh hey oh i'm sorry yeah <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. He's like, he started laughing. He's like, I understand, but just, you got, you're getting called up. So get your stuff and you're, you're going to go. Um, so that was, yeah, I was glad to call my parents right away. And, uh, really cool. It was really, uh, you know, even if it was game, I think it was game 81, maybe mm-hmm. didn't matter. It was cool. I got to go out to Minnesota, play a game and, and get a chance to see what it looked like and put on that Jersey for the first time was, was a dream come true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so what, what was kind of going through your head as you, as you started? Were you, were you going into the game with any expectations of yourself? Were, were you worried about maybe, oh, like, oh, I have to really like, prove myself you know, towards the end of the season? You know, I have to get a couple of points or make a couple of plays? Or were you just going in there just with an open mind, just trying to like, just enjoy it? Yeah, it was it was uh, yeah, mind racking. You know what I mean? Like in the juniors, there's no such thing as up and down. So like jumping on a whole new team and then at the end of the season they've all been together like chemistry who am I going to fit with like yeah I want to perform for sure um now looking back on it, it didn't really matter <laughs> it's game 81 mm-hmm. and they're out of the playoffs so it did like it I wasn't gonna like extend my stay it was only two games possibility of playing but um you know it was like you know who am I gonna click with I wonder who am I gonna play with like I want to score like started thinking of my mapping out my you know my game how I'd place you know for McTavish, like I know he's like a defensive guy, like but I want to score, and mm-hmm. so you know those thoughts and fig- trying to figure it out, map it out, and you get into warmups and try to stay out of everybody's routine, like you know, what I mean? yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Eighty games in a season, like people have their routines and warmups. Like, do I do my own warmup or you know what I mean? Like that kind mm-hmm. of. It was just a cluster, like so much mental stuff going on. It was kind of hard. It's hard to even remember it, to be honest with you. It was so like, I don't want anxious almost. But it was it was cool all in all. And the other thing is, my unfortunately, there was a huge snowstorm in my hometown, so my parents weren't able to make it out for it. But oh. so they were kind of rattled. But it was all you know. It is what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And then uh, during that that same pro year, um, when you played with Wilkes-Barre, uh, you know, you had the chance to play with Paul Busynet, who obviously is a very uh, big name in the hockey world today. What was it like playing with Paul Busynet? Biz Nasty got called yeah. out for one weekend and. Uh, did really well. He did really well, and unfortunately, I think it was a bit of a numbers game thing, and he got called from the coast, and then uh, they had to set, put him back down. Another guy came out for IR, but uh, Biz was awesome. He's full of life, you know, just kind of like free spirit, bopping around, making guys laugh, and you know, he's a good, good locker room guy. But I didn't get a, I didn't get a large sample with Biz, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, 
but uh, you know, just from the short time there, he was he's uh, the word beauty what comes to mind. <laughs> you know, just just different than your normal cookie cutter hockey player, you know, or mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I said, full life, just really wanted to enjoy it and and be a guy that made guys laugh. And and but then you go out and he tough as nails through the knuckles around that weekend. He had a, I think he had a couple points, a couple fights on a two game stint and did really well. So probably deserved more to be honest with you. But mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, just they had to send him back down. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned how he was like full of life and what, what kind of importance do you think is the role of having uh, you know, like quote unquote team guys amongst the team to keep the players loose and everything? Yeah. I mean, it's very valuable. Locker room goes, the locker room is, is a big part of success. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if a lot of guys are focused, you know, if you got 20 Corey Perry's like, then there's not gonna be much conversation going on. Like Paris is, you know what I mean? Like some mm-hmm. guys like to be loose before a game. Some guys like to, you know, be in their own zone. So having a guy that knows that chemistry and has the right guys laughing and relaxed and enjoying and being ready to just go out there and and only think about performing um, and enjoying it, I think is Mm -hmm. important, you know, and that's what Biz did get to keep the guy, but there is like, you got to be respectful too. Like it's a, it's not as easy. Now you don't just come in the room and start telling jokes and everyone loves you. Like, that's not the thing. Like you could step on the wrong guy's toes too. Like guys are focused and you're over there, you know, clowning around and that could piss them off and throw them off so mm-hmm. it's a healthy balance of of keeping the right guys loose and fly and ready to go and, and also staying out of certain guys ways and let them do their thing and uh, locker room balance is a huge thing mm-hmm. so you know if you, as you look across your career and you you finish your entry-level contract with Edmonton and then you found yourself playing for the Islanders what what was the reason for, if you don't mind sharing, for transition to the Islanders? Was that something that was more your choice? Was it, you know, more out of your control? Uh, what was that experience like for you, not sticking with the team that drafted you after your entry-level contract? It was a relief for me, personally. I had, you know, there wasn't any space for growth there for me anymore, and that was very evident. And unfortunately, it came at a tough time when Pat Quinn came in, which gave a new spring on life, new coach, new ideas, and, you know, they just it became a process then where they already had two or three first round draft picks behind me. So mm-hmm. those were the guys they were going to interject. And uh, I got put on waivers. I, once you get done with your entry level deal, your second deal, you're allowed uh, waivers after being cut in training camp. So um, it was nothing on, and nothing I asked for or anything like that. But, you know, just through the process of having waivers, I got put on waivers and the Islanders picked me up. So I was excited. It just I needed a change. You know, I only played seven games as a first rounder through three years of Mm -hmm. pro. Uh, Kind of frustrating. You know, it's really on the one year in the A, I had a pretty good season, point of game season, all star season. You think the next like just like when I was 19, I thought after 18 years old playing the Mem Cup, winning the Mem Cup, changing Mm -hmm. my game, evolving and being an overall player. 19, I was ready didn't happen then i went to the minors played pretty good first year played really good second year third year it, like the third year in the minors was just starting to drag on me because there was no light at the end of the tunnel i just i really probably got in my own mind too much mm-hmm. i needed a new scene so being put on waivers and picked up by a new team was a fresh fresh breath for me mm-hmm. and uh you know just time to move on and also being closer to home really i got back in long island my family's only five hours away so more realistic for them to come to games and be around mm-hmm. and be supportive. So it was exciting all around for me. Nothing. Uh, I wish it would have worked out. And Pat Quinn seemed like a great guy. Remind me a lot of my grandfather, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, really honest guy, really good, really good human being. And 
I was excited in that aspect, but also not not dumb in the other aspects of seeing they had other first rounders that were young studs and yeah probably gonna get the looks and i've already been like you know three years oh this first rounder is not working so okay and that's finally got my chance to go somewhere else and prove that i could play Mm -hmm. um so there was a really new spring on life and an exciting time for me Mm -hmm. and so what was your experiences in your first year of playing pro with the islanders did you feel your like a, a lot of a lot of weight off your shoulders you know you're finally getting your chance after having a very decorated junior career and you know, uh, a, a string of three pretty good AHL years. Was it kind of like a, a, relief, a relief and, you know, you can kind of like prove everyone wrong that, you know, you didn't deserve to be to be weighed and you deserve a bigger chance? Yeah, you know, and then it, wasn't a, it wasn't a smooth path there either. I got picked up and played like three or four games and the, unfortunately there was only spots on the third, fourth line on wing. I never mm-hmm. played wing. I played one year wing in minors and it was, I mean, if I'm being brutally honest, I sucked. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have like, breakaway speed and i'm not you know in the system we were playing it was a lot of wall battles and this really kind of against my you know strengths Mm -hmm. so i didn't know what the hell i was doing there and that's so i had three or four games didn't put on a good good showing to be honest with you played you know not to say i didn't get enough time or that like that like i didn't deserve any time to play i played 70 minutes because i stunk Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to sit out and wait about 15, 20 games until someone either got hurt or played themselves out of the lineup. So it was a little, it wasn't just smooth sailing, but it was a feeling of relief in the sense that I was there. So I got to practice every day. I got to work my game. I got to be around an NHL setting and travel and, and, you know, even was getting bag skated every single day by Scotty Allen, it was making me better. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't down in the minors with that, like, when am I, you know, am I ever going to get my chance mindset? It was more like, I, I'm so close right now. It just takes one one thing for me to get in Mm -hmm. uh that's a much different mindset you know and and, you know in the beginning it was kind of hard for the first i'd say five seven games you you got i'm competitive and wanted to play and kind of pissed me off that i wasn't but then i started to realize like hey i'm here just make the best of it and be a team guy like Mm -hmm. literally not playing it sucks but like don't be the downer where like guys are just avoiding you because you know, nobody wants to hear about why you're not playing while they're playing. Like, yeah. it's the worst case scenario. Like, you become really like the play really quick. So I learned that fast and was like, don't, that's not the guy. And that's not even my personality. I, I like, to, I'm like Paul Bisson as well. I like to keep guys laughing, keep the room light. Even while I'm taking a beating and getting back skated every day, <laughs> I come in the room and be telling jokes or playing Pong with Oki and Strider and these guys and, and just being one of the boys. And that's it. That's not their fault I'm not playing. So don't put it on them. Yeah. Um, and then finally, when I got in, everybody was excited that I got in. I got my first NHL goal. The boys were pumped, started scoring in the shootouts. It made the guys pumped. You know, it was, it was a better feeling than, you know, if I would have got in there and had been sour grapes for the last two months, it would have been more like not so excited for me. Mm-hmm. It would kind of, it, it would like, sorry to interrupt, but it would kind of decrease that team cohesion. And, you know, it's, you know, you picked off off waivers, you know, your spot is by no means some, um, you know, inscribed in the lineup. So, you know, if you're kind of being a, a downer, like you're kind of saying how you're trying to avoid, um, it hurts your chances even more. And it kind of like puts bad vibes around the room, I would imagine. And it's or just, you'll find yourself right back on waivers again if you keep Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, that's what we're kind of getting at. Like, buddy, like, grow up and pick your lip up. Like, it's, this yeah. is like, 
it's a man's game too as well. And I don't mean a man's game. That's not right. It's for, it games for everybody. But like when you're in that locker room with 20 other men, they don't need you acting like a 10 year old boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, really in the, in the reality of it, like grow up. <laughs> so that, that's important. That same year you found yourself playing for the Atlanta Thrashers as well. Um, what was that experience like for you? You know, you, you moved from Edmonton and, you know, Oh no, sorry. The next year you ended up with Atlanta. My, my, my apologies. Um, what what's it like switching from team to team and trying to uh, work yourself into a new locker room is did you find that difficult did you you know like what are some strategies or tips uh that you that you did to um to make that happen other than just being like a team guy per se yeah i already had my you know my kind of education i guess you could call it or my experiences from it so it wasn't anything new to me and from for me my personality is very outgoing and i'm pretty easygoing like i said like to keep it light and and joke around a lot of times and just keep it so that everything's light you know this isn't everything doesn't have to be so serious i think van wilder said it don't don't take life so seriously you'll never get out alive um so going room to room i mean eagle kind of had already taken its beating so i wasn't so like oh my you know nobody wants me again i didn't really care it was another new chance it was another mm-hmm. new opportunity and it was actually 20 22 new guys i got to meet and there were a bunch of good guys so mm-hmm. you know long island was a bunch of great guys as well it just didn't work as far as numbers again i wasn't a draft pick they had some young bucks coming up you know josh bailey was injured a little bit and that's why i got a little more rope to run with he came back mm-hmm. healthy and they wanted to really get him running so um that's that's easier for me to swallow than you know what i mean like the first example was seven games over three years and not on a winning team that was like uh, it kind of was like how can i not this scenario was more i could see it and i had already had some experience with it with the numbers game quote unquote or we're not quote unquote but that scenario mm-hmm. so this was more like okay yeah this, this is how it works like they need to make space at least i found somewhere else to go um where if i would have been going back down the minors i think it would have been a different story uh, mm-hmm. Now you are further from your where you want to be, and that's tougher to take. So I got to go to Atlanta with some great players. I mean, Antropov, Wheeler, Andrew Ladd, Dustin Bufflin, like a lot of really yeah. good Evander guys. Yeah, Evander Kane, they, too. Evander Kane, and they, and they yeah. were, when I got there, were only two points out of a playoff spot. So also some hope of making a playoff push was, was new because we didn't have that in the island either. We had a tough season my second year. Scott Gordon got fired. A lot of moving pieces right so it wasn't very stable there in the first place mm-hmm. so that's the other thing the young if we had a winning team and we're rolling then maybe i do stay in the lineup but whether we're losing games all the time now it's time for draft picks to develop yeah uh yeah. it's just the way it is and, and i understand that too like why would they keep pushing me when they have a first rounder that needs to get growing and, and learn his you know growing pains mm-hmm. um so it wasn't really insulting it was i totally understood and i appreciated garth being honest and uh moved on so unfortunately they sold the team after that year in atlanta and changed all management and that was kind of the way she went for my nhl career Mm -hmm. and so the next year you moved into the the swedish hockey league was that was that your choice to move away from the nhl and the ahl like were you getting any offers around the league or where did you kind of find yourself in a spot where you had to look somewhere else because the opportunities were either not there or very limited uh for my agent's translation to me that was uh two-way contracts and when you're so i already understood it from waiver pickup when you start talking two-way contract after a couple years in the show it's the writing's on the wall they already have draft picks maybe i jumped 
conclusions, but I've seen it a couple times. <laughs> when yeah. you're not you're not a draft pick, it takes so much to make the team. And even then you might not make the team. I was not looking to grind it out in the minors anymore. I had a tough run with it in Springfield. I hated it. Uh, no offense. There were some good people there, but like that minors grind was tough. And I just said, you know what, let's just go to Europe, talk to my agent. And there's some great leagues over there. You go to play in Sweden, a lot of stuff, a lot of people talk about my skating. So I figured go over to Europe, big, really good skating league in the SHL and work on my game and try to make a crack at coming back. And that was the kind of the mindset. Um, I just didn't want to climb the ranks of the minors again. And I know going into a two-way contract, you're probably first or second cut because <laughs> you have, there's not anything invested in you. What's, mm-hmm. They have nothing invested where a couple of draft picks behind your first rounders, especially there's guys behind them, scouts that are vouching and pulling for them. There's other people in management pulling for these first rounders over you. So unless you go in there and score 100 goals or whatever, yeah. <laughs> you're probably I mean, you score going to score 100 minors. goals, I'm sure will keep you. <laughs> <laughs> you're especially if you're a team guy. <laughs> yeah. So I just yeah. kind of maybe I just saw the writing on the wall and, and I said, OK, let's try Europe and come back after a year and build my game and and see what that looks like so that was how that got came to that conclusion uh kevin shevendayoff told asked him right away would rob take a two-way and it was kind of like no no i won't uh, i i don't want to play that game uh and so what was the transition like like into europe for you in the in the swedish hockey league and you know you eventually moved on to the, the khl and you know switzerland and austria and and whatnot like what, what what do you think are the, the bigger differences between the European style of hockey and the North American style of hockey? Because obviously there's more ice, so there's more room to, to make plays and, and skate. Yeah, it's, it's way different. You know, on North American ice, it's it's uh, really when you get in the offensive zone, it's it's bang, bang, right? Like you make one pass and you get a guy inside a certain area and it's a really good grade A scoring chance. Where with the bigger ice, you have to string together two, sometimes three passes for a scoring chance mm-hmm. because it's so packed in the middle. So if you can go ahead and fire from outside, but I mean, it's not like you're shooting at shooter tutors. I think you see a lot of the NHL goalies are European. There's a lot of Swedish <laughs> goalies, a lot of Finnish goalies. Like these are really good goalies and understand angles. So angles change on the bigger ice when you shoot from the face off uh, face off dot or outside of that top of the circles ish you see a lot of goals over here Ovi can score from that spot all time mm-hmm. he can score from the top of the circles you start taking on the olympic ice these shots start becoming like playing catch with the goalie uh you're shooting from way farther out and the angles are way different so now you have to find ways to get inside that space and the teams do a really good job of first of all stick position and second of all tightening up in the middle of the ice from where the deadly areas are so that's where you see how it comes into making two me to you, you to someone else, and then maybe even another play to get a chance where it's a really good chance. So that's where you see it's a lot of 2-1. Uh, a point-a-game guy in Europe is a big year. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not that easy to get points, and, and it's not as open as everybody thinks. It's not ball hockey. No, unless you start playing a little more like the Swiss League, that is a little more offensive and gunslinging. Um, Sweden, KHL, these, these leagues are all very tight, tight in the D zone or offensive zone whatever way you want to look at it. And like I said, the shot angles totally change. So trying to manipulate those and find areas, it's it's tough. And that's why I think you see some of the Europeans come over here and have such great success because it is. It's just like, oh, I only have to make one pass to get a scoring chance. Like it's it's a lot mm-hmm. easier. Uh, a lot less, lot less of a chance of a mistake. Right. And so do you think that your game was better suited for the Euro- European style of, of hockey? Or do you think your game is more suited for North American? 
I think the game was I did it on both sides, so mm-hmm. I don't know, to be honest with you. I I had fair fair success over here and had fair success over there. So uh, it's all about being a student of the game and understanding it. So for me being able to pass the puck and shoot the puck, I can do I could understand uh, what it took to get points in, in the KHL and Sweden and these well, I didn't do that well in KHL, but uh, I understood the game understood it in most of the levels there and over here as, as well my point totals were not that bad and NHL even you know where I slotted in as a third liner kind of um, mm-hmm. and having those kind of regulations as a third liner not regulations but restrictions so to speak you're not parameters yeah parameters yeah. you're not really allowed certain things to do because you are the third line <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, like, uh, you get stuck in kind of a role when you're the third line yeah <laughs> you're not you're not the guy at the, inside the blue line making the play that's just part of yeah Mm-hmm. Um. So, yeah, no, I know I felt good on either side, to be honest with you. Uh, I came back in the HL even 2016 and, and still had some fair success and became more of a goal scorer because it was a lot. The angles were different. Getting closer than that, my shot was more lethal and used that a little more than I was over in Europe. I was more of a passer. You had to be. Mm-hmm. So it would be it would be silly for me not to ask you about how you became such a good stick handler. And, you know, like, did you have any, like, um, any certain uh, mentors to teach you these, these skills, like a certain skills coach? Or how did you become really, really good at stick handling? Uh, to be honest, I had a stick in my hand all the time. I mean, I always was playing with the puck, playing with a, a scrunch down pop can, crunch it up and be playing around with that. I used to, I mean... A little personal, but even in the bathtub, I used to play around with the plug from the from the drain. That was a little rubber plug, and I played, <laughs> working, <laughs> snapping it, and or hockey stick. And then I started playing a lot of lacrosse. Lacrosse really translated and taught me mm-hmm. a lot how to roll the wrist and how to manipulate. You know, you got to manipulate the stick and lacrosse, otherwise the ball flies everywhere. So if you do that with a hockey puck, it translates very well. Um, and also mm-hmm. release points. With lacrosse stick, is the same release point as with hockey stick. So if you don't snap your wrist and release it and point to your target with lacrosse stick, the ball will fly a mile in the air. In the air, mm-hmm. excuse me. And with the hockey stick, the same thing. So all that translated well. And I just always played sport. Like I always had some sport going on. Um, you know, I think about even football. If playing quarterback, you snap your to your target and hand eye. Uh, with baseball, so a lot of it was just kind of a combination of sport, and then. Once I got to a level with hockey, I put all those into hockey at 12 or 13, and it I just gave me a lot of confidence because I had a lot of control of the puck. Mm-hmm. Right, and so I, I feel like it's it's also a really good opportunity to talk about the importance of using practice and you know and and home and at home to work on your skills because if you look at if you know if you look up your name on YouTube, a lot of it is in skills competitions and shootouts because you're a very good uh, shootout player and, and you're very skilled with the puck and using practices and time at home to really work on those skills because when you have when you have practice um, and you know you agree, let me know if you agree with me at practice I feel like it's a, a lot better opportunity to work on skating and more positional stuff whereas when you're at home I feel like that's a better opportunity to really work on stick handling and shooting. I think it goes all, I mean, there, there's no pressure in practice. Um, mm-hmm. Why not try things, right? That's my mentality. I mean, why not? Like, there's, okay, so we got scored on in practice because I turned it over. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. It didn't cost. Um, I think for me is is practice with a purpose. 
Uh, it's not about going out and screwing around with the puck and like flipping it around and doing these things. For me, it was learning what I, where I excelled on the ice. When you start getting levels up and up and up, there's only certain areas where you'll find success or where you're really good at. You don't have to be good at every single section of the ice. You have to be really good at certain areas of the ice if you want to talk offensively. So finding out your pass, where you skate a lot and where you like to be a lot, and then being dominant in those areas. And that's trying things in those areas and figuring out how to escape in a certain scenario. And that might be flipping a puck up in the air. Like, mm -hmm. literally, like flip it over a stick. Like, guy head totally has an angle on you, flip it up over a stick, knock it down. Try these things and try to be creative and practice and push your limits and push your boundaries. Yeah, if it's not ready for a game, don't try it in a game. But if it gets to a point in a game and it's effective in both practice and it's a spot and a time in the game to do it where you know that you can pull it off and succeed at doing it, why not? Mm -hmm. I, there's no it's not to be fancy or tricky it's to be effective so mm -hmm. practice with a purpose for me is is a big thing um i see a lot of it and you know go on the ice and see you know kids or players do a drill even in my pro career at the end watching guys go through the drill so lackadaisical at the end of it just flipping one on net why would you not just like narrow focus on like absolutely burying the puck or taking yeah. like one day i would go and take low glove shots like every time try to go low glove and go inside the post if I miss the net, who cares? If I get soft, who cares? But like, mm -hmm. if you dial these things in, I think a lot of practice is about repetition and doing things over and over again through the failures and, and kind of conquering it. And that's what I took pride in when I practiced was like trying to conquer certain things. I try to turn a defenseman all practice long. Every time we did a drill, I would try to turn a defenseman. And I don't care if I got stopped. Like, it's, I just need to perfect that and learn what it takes to actually pull it off mm -hmm. when it comes. Because you, you don't get 10 opportunities to go inside, outside on a D during a game. You might get one, maybe two. Yeah. But if you keep, you know, if you have that in your tool set, then I think it's it kind of comes to you when that opportunity presents itself, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that's my opinion, at least. And that's what I try to do when I practice. You know, a lot of practices I work on sauce passes. I would only make sauce passes because I did a lot of sauce passes because what happens is when you learn about aerial passes and you learn that it buys you time and space and also buys your shooter and the puck receiver time and space, it opens up a whole nother field of the ice of it. Mm -hmm. And you're not stuck to just flat passes. Some people might think it's, well, keep it on the ice. Well, if you can learn how to do both, <laughs> now you have a tool set. Yeah. Right. Literally. And that's, you know, certain things. And it's not going in practice and just flipping pucks in the air to be funny or different it's literally practicing with a purpose i know that when i come wheel behind the net i can saucer from the goal line to the far blue end and the guy cutting for a breakaway that's mm. a tool that is very effective <laughs> yeah you know it's not to just do it and be like oh i'm gonna come around the net and flip one in the air mm. and hope it lands it's like literally no i'm trying to do it and i'm trying to time it and learn about if you think about if you ever you know you shoot clay pigeons it's about timing and aiming with the gun and then catching the timing and aiming up to it leading that target now you work on passing the same way leading aiming and watching timing and you know it's effective so it's like purpose behind all of it it's not just for to be different it's it's also like as many things you can put in your tool set by practicing with a purpose you get so much ice time especially mm -hmm. in pro you don't have to be going 100 miles none of saying you gotta bag yourself but if you go out there every day with one purpose and, and conquer it or get to be better at it then i think that's even you know at a young age i was doing that um mm -hmm. so practice is always and then when you get home you can do whatever you want mm -hmm. so that's all i mean maybe it's a long story long on that explanation but
No, that was that, that was excellent. No, that, that there, there's a ton of good points in there, and a couple of them I think are, was what you talked about when you said, you know, why would you go to practice and just kind of like mail it in per se? Like practice is a really good opportunity to try new things and to to work hard, and you know, because it's called a positive transfer. So you know, if you want your skills to transfer to the best they can into a game situation, you have to practice them as realistic and similar to um, a game situation as you can. Because in a game, you know, you're not you're not going to just mail it in. Or I hope you won't, because you'll probably find yourself on the bench. But if you can practice, like you said, with a purpose, and you know, get, give that hundred percent effort and set those uh, uh, mini goals, like you said, um, you'll you'll likely see better results. Yeah, I remember plenty of conversations I had with teammates. I'd be like, "What? Hey, try this." He'd be like, "Try it maybe once or twice." Like, oh, I I can't. I I wouldn't do that in the game. I I can't do that. And I'd be like, "Well, tried twice." Because <laughs> you tried it twice, first of all, and yeah, and it's like, so then you then you're always going to be doing the same thing. Like anybody can get better at skating for sure. You go hard, go 100 miles an hour. If you, you get as much ice time as you do in pro or in junior. Yeah, like then you're just going to be a copy paste of everything else. Like, so try new things. <laughs> it goes in life too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. you don't only eat the same thing all the time. Sometimes it took me a while to like it too. But sushi, I always had that stubborn like I am trying. It's terrible. And I finally wound up trying it. And I liked it. <laughs> so oh, different in these I, scenarios. So I, 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 I still can't do sushi. <laughs> yeah, I know some people are, yeah. are off to it, but you know that's maybe a bad example. But you get what I'm saying. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If, why not try it in practice? Like you aren't mm-hmm. going to get benched in practice, you know, and it's, it really, I think about br- testing your barriers and making yourself better by any tools you can get. I mean, one guy, Dan Balsmo is a coach of mine in Wilkes-Barre. He, he taught me something. He said, one of the things he tried to do in his career was learn one thing from each guy that he ever played with. And that made a lot of sense. And it was, it didn't even matter what it was. It didn't matter if it was a guy that was putting pasta sauce and ranch for his pregame lunch he learned that that guy liked it that's something new he learned you go out on the ice and, and this guy likes to do something a certain way you pay attention to him and you just absorb it mm-hmm. and then maybe put it in your repertoire if it doesn't if it doesn't go into your toolbox then yeah you get rid of it, it doesn't fit but like at least try and learn new things on, a, on an everyday basis is and especially when you're playing at higher levels you're playing with better players mm-hmm. watching a Corey perry seeing how he created space and time that's educational don't just go oh, i can never do that of course you can't because you started with a negative. <laughs> if you yeah. think you can, then you're right. You can't because you started off by just absolutely doubting yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think it's more about positive thinking and positive. It starts with a positive, like, oh, he can do that. So can I. And I'm going to try to figure out how to do it. Not, mm-hmm. oh, I would never do that. Well, you're right. Then you never will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's funny how that works, eh? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Another thing too is, um, like you said, trying trying new things, and it kind of keeps you know defensemen and, and uh, the other team guessing. Because if you do the same thing every time, you know it, it gets old, and you know you become very predictable. And I feel like that's what's kind of become cool about these lacrosse style goals we're starting to see um, much more commonly in the NHL. You know, with uh, Andre Svechnikov um, and um, uh, who else pulled one off this year? Um, oh, Phil Forsberg. And that's a move that you've been seen to do in, in shootouts and whatnot. What do you think of the, the Michigan style and the cross style uh, kind of goals starting to become more prominent in the NHL? I think it's an entertainment business, and I think it's very entertaining. Mm-hmm. So what you'll see is backlash and people complaining about it. It's probably the people that can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. So <laughs> I don't get it. 
you know, I just, for my opinion on it, it's like robots get old, man. Uh, new innovation is nice. And I hate seeing it trying to get suppressed. It's like, who cares? It's under the crossbar. Mm-hmm. If he pulls it over the crossbar, it's no longer gold. The puck comes outside. If he pulls it off, why not? I don't get it. So then you've seen some cool baseball style goals. Should those be exiled? What's no. the difference? <laughs> like, there's what's no, the difference? There's, there's it's no not difference, on the ice, really. <laughs> it's out of the air. It's hand-eye coordination. Should that be exiled? So now everything should be. So should we also stop being able to score goals off the ice? Everybody should have to shoot on the ice, too? Like, what else is there? Like, I, I just don't like that part of it. When somebody does something innovative and creative, it gets instantly, like, people almost mad. Yeah, I think it's just kind of more enter. It's entertain. It's an entertainment business. Like people pay to come watch and be excited and see. You know, I'm not saying they're looking to see every single night something different. Some people are old school and they're like, ah, I don't like it. But for me personally, like you're standing behind the net. I saw. I was young enough to be around with uh, Paul and Gary Gate, the Air Gate. The guy went behind the crease, jumped over the net, and tucked it in without touching the crease, without touching the crossbar. It counts. It's a goal. What's the problem? <laughs> wait, it's now wait. The Sir, did that happen? The air gate. Look it up. Oh, I, I've never heard of that. <laughs> wait, so, sorry, he jumped over the net? That's in lacrosse. Oh, I thought you meant in hockey. I was like, that's I'm sorry if I didn't specify. That's okay, in lacrosse. Okay. They played for SU. And okay. the thing in lacrosse, you can't step in the crease and you can't touch the crossbar. So okay. he jumps over the net and he... From behind the net, jumps up in the air, and he wraps his hand around and tucks it in. It's called the air gate. It's almost like the leg, but in uh, Mike leg, but in lacrosse. Okay. So, innovation and entertainment. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. what is wrong with that? <laughs> that's that's my view on it. What's wrong with it? <laughs> Interesting. And then, speaking of the entertainment business, there's been a lot of talk recently about the the emergency backup situation. You know, with David Ayers and the Leafs and Carolina and. You know, I mean, I, I watched I watched that game. Uh, it wasn't on, and then I heard an emergency backup came in, and it was a big game for the Leafs in Carolina because they were they're fighting for the same spot really. And it goes in game, and the Leafs score first two goals on them, and it's like okay, you know, like you know, it's gonna be like a 10, 10 whatever game. And then next thing you know, Carolina just starts playing out of their mind and, and giving Leafs absolutely nothing. And then uh, the emergency backup ends up getting a win, a win. What do you think of the emergency backup goalie situation? I think it's, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's such a rare case. Mm-hmm. And I think what it does for that emergency backup in his life and his, what it opens up for them is, is something that's amazing. You know, like that guy, both of them, they got to do it. They count, they came in for Chicago. I can't remember his name. Uh, uh, Scott Foster. Scott Foster. And I mean, the, the amount of joy they get. And I don't know. I, I don't see the I don't see the negative on it. I mean, but they start talking about playoff implications and such forth. And it's I think it was more like what happens about the team that Toronto's chasing and the emergency backup goes in. Also, the emergency backup wins the game. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. oh, now what? Um, mm-hmm. That was where the back push was or the, or the pushback was. But I think. I don't know. I see the other side of it. I think it's just so amazing for those guys to get to get that call. You know, they, they obviously, well, you know, they put themselves on the list for that and they probably never expect to actually go in as you, how many times has two goalies ever gotten injured? They're the most protected guys on the ice as far as equipment mm-hmm. and gear. Um, 
I think it's just such a rarity, but it's like the amount of positivity that comes out of it in that person's life. And, you know, in the scenario like that with Caroline, how the boys celebrated with him. And, you know, I, I don't know. I just see so I see a lot more positive in it, but I, I can also see it would it would suck if you were going for a playoff push, but like, what's the answer? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's such, okay. Then if you have such a negative view on it, then come up with a solution that fits every, that ticks off every single box of fair for everybody and accepted by everybody. And also when, okay, so now you're going to start carrying three goalies and it's going to cost you money because yeah. not many people in the world can just bomb around for a year with no salary, make $0 just in case two goalies go down, which only has happened. And ah, I don't know the exact number, but uh, so now you're going to be costing money those are the pain points. I don't think it's such a big deal. I think it's such a rarity and, and the positive outweighs the negative, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Um, you give them what ifs. What if it was a playoff race? I don't know. What if, what if what? What if I was a billionaire? I don't know. I'm not. It's not going to happen. <laughs> like, what if what? Like, you know what I mean? I don't know. The what if game is kind of bizarre to me. Um, mm -hmm. I just think in the fans, I think, I don't know. I guess you, you pull the fans. See what they think. Mm -hmm. You know, what do the fans think about that? Interesting. And so, uh, post career for you. So you, your last uh, season of hockey was in you know 2018, and since then you mentioned that you've been doing some work in the CBD industry and um, advocating for mental health and uh, some uh, some online coaching stuff. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I unfortunately at the end of my career kicked up with post concussion stuff with a lot of anxiety and uh, depression issues, sleep issues. So I was you know, taking medications. I had a, my daughter was coming in the world and it was really kind of a tough spot for me as the medications were pretty tough. So met a CBD company at a professional hockey camp I was at and, you know, get the product a try and it had a huge impact on me personally. So helped me get more natural and I didn't need these strong pharmaceuticals anymore, mm -hmm. uh, medications. And that was important to me when I was taking a time for anxiety with Xanax was making me basically a mummy. And I, I really want to be present in my daughter's life and my wife's life. So I was kind of in this place of need really, because that was the only solution I had at the time. Uh, was a huge godsend in my mind to, to meet this company and have this product have an impact. So I got behind it as an advocate and uh, they eventually, you know, wind up investing in this company and then being part of it as a liaison, um, helping build the company out and gave me a mission and gave me something to put the stick down and, and have something to be passionate about and give me a little bit of purpose. Mm -hmm. um, so that was exciting and it's still part of it and still, still building and uh, helping anybody else. And like I mentioned, mental health, so I kind of had a tough, you know, I had a tough bat with it for a long time till I was able, you know, kind of okay with talking about it. And that gave me a lot of relief, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the amount of, you know, you always hide for me, I was hiding that stuff cause I felt ashamed almost. And, people hear that stuff and you don't know how they're going to react a lot of stigma around mental health mm -hmm. depression. i uh, didn't really want sympathy out of it either uh so once i kind of told my story and explained where i was and why i was the way maybe through my career it, it opened up a lot of doors as far as positivity and people also reaching out with the same story and kind of gratifying to to be able to help them feel more comfortable with you know what they're going through and what i battled with so that was good. So I worked with a company named Same Here um, for the mental health stuff, and I relate a couple of mental health uh, corporation, not one corporation, a couple of mental health uh, foundations that I work with, mm -hmm. just to try to support. And you know, being an athlete, I played professional athlete, and some people think that it's all, you know, glitz and glamour, but there are 
you know, plenty of us going through stuff like that and kind of finding ways of going on our everyday life and being happy and, and figuring out routines and things that help. Uh, it helps to have a team in that aspect because once you walk away from a team sport, it, it gets, it does get a little bit lonely. You're not going to have 20 guys every day to go in the room and, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, have that camaraderie. So uh, different type, type of team atmosphere. Um, and then also relating, you know, bringing that all in together with, with, you know, the CBD company and healthcare company. I work with AG Health Beta. Uh, that also works as a support beam and a natural solution for that, for the same stuff. So, uh, it all kind of goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, one, thank you for sharing, for opening up and sharing, um, you know, a bit of your experiences with mental health. It's, uh, it's never something that's necessarily easy to talk about, but um, like you said, it's really important to to help break those stigmas and to um, you know shine some light on shine some light on it because especially with hockey, hockey is obviously um, you know it's traditionally more of a hyper masculine sport. Um, you know, and it's and part of being in a hyper masculine sport is that you know showing any signs of kind of weakness and emotions makes you seem less than, which is not true because you know like like guys you know and I'm just pointing out guys are not because guys. Um, seem to have more stigma around showing emotions and whatnot, you know, like we're, we're human too. And, you know, we have emotions and not feel, being able to feel comfortable showing those emotions and, you know, maybe feeling like you're going to get less playing time or less opportunities for advancement or what uh, whatnot can, um, I'd imagine, be very difficult. I've, I've never been in the situation myself. You know, I'm obviously not an NHL player, um, but uh, I would imagine that's something that um, would, would be very difficult. And um, yeah, I really appreciate to hear that. Uh, you're you're doing things to um, try to break the stigma and to, to help shine more light and um, help you know both athletes and non-athletes uh, live happier lives. That's something that means a lot to me, and I, I really praise you for doing that. I appreciate that. Thanks. It's uh, yeah. it's gratifying, and it's I think it's important to support each other. And that's the other thing. You know, growing up as you get older, it's it's more it's just accepting people, and you know, it's not. <laughs> and that's the thing with stigma. It's, it's sometimes people don't even realize they're being part of the problem or the stigma it's you don't throw stones for people that have faults not faults or issues i should maybe call them it's really about supporting and understanding and, and that makes you a better person it makes you grow as a person understanding that not everybody's the same each person has their own fight so we have also have a foundation called the fight like me foundation and that's you know in regards to everybody has a fight and it might be you know some of them going through cancer. It might be someone like myself with mental health. Um, everybody has a fight, and it's more about supporting each other than picking each other apart for those problems, like mm-hmm. those issues. I don't want to say problems, but they are problems sometimes. It was a problem for me a long time because I didn't know how to deal with it, and I kind of masked it. So that was a problem. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, you know, once you start learning to support each other and be, be a good person, it, it really is – no longer becomes a problem. You start finding the solutions and you start feeling better about your every day. For me, more days are sunny and shiny. I wake up happy and ready to go and where there's less, you know, there's a lot of days I woke up and it was very dark, right? It was, mm. you know, bad thoughts. But so that's the thing when you feel supported and not like you're getting, like you said, like worried if I open up about this, I well, they're going to send me down or they're going to ship me out. <laughs> like yeah. that should never be the case. It should be if I open up about it, they're going to be behind me uh, mm-hmm. and absolutely help me get out of this gr- grog. Um, and that's really important. So, um, yeah, that's just to expand on that a little bit. But mm-hmm. no, I, I, absolutely. And um, I the NHL has a 
is it the player assistance program where f- former uh, former NHL players can, can reach out if they're ever struggling with uh, career transition and, and mental health? That there's something in place, right? I believe so. Yeah, I never relied on it. Like uh, obviously being out of the league a long time. I was at last year, 2012. I was more in Europe, so I've kind of found my path on my own. Uh, probably I never even circled back to, to dig into those programs, but I, from what I understand, they do. They are putting them in place, and, and or they are in place to support as it's kind of becoming more prominent. I think, you know, a lot of guys are speaking of what they've gone through and telling their story. So it's really been an eye opener. And that's, what's important about, you know, it's about talking about it. You know, for me, hiding it was helping nobody. It wasn't helping me either. Uh, as the more and more bad decisions or dumb things I was doing to mask it, instead of just opening up and asking for a support beam, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's, it was, I think it's become very much more prominent of how much, guys had struggled in silence so now they're realizing that it does help to to add those in and and nhl's been great about it and and trying to help especially when with the contact sport concussion stuff and the you know the repercussions Mm -hmm. later on is it's becoming more more evident Uh, maybe it's not day one when you drop the stick it might even be down the road three four years where all of a sudden these things are starting to kind of come out you need somewhere to go and not feel like you're just out in the street on your own trying to figure out your figure out your life and feel like there's no, you know, when you're in the NHL or when you're in any pro league, you have so much support with training staff and that kind of stuff. When you're on your own, it's like, it's kind of lonely. <laughs> you don't get mm-hmm. to go to the rink tomorrow and just be like, Hey doc, I'm feeling weird. You know, it's really just you and your wife. So to open up those programs and organizations to have support for, for guys that are done with the game is, is huge. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are, if, if you could think of one thing um, that that needs to be changed to help players feel more comfortable opening up about um, mental illness and, and their struggles, what do you think that one thing may be if there is one? I just think the acceptance of like it's okay to not be okay, that, that expression has been thrown around a lot, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the tough guy act of like, I don't, you know, the, the person that's going through it has to find, you know, feel comfortable not dealing with it on their own. So if you see more, I think what it takes is probably more and more guys mm-hmm. talking when they're not feeling okay to, to be like, okay, he did it. I can do it. You know, cause if you, sometimes you have that feeling too, of like everyone around you seems fine. Am I going to be the one downer or the one guy that's not okay? Like, mm-hmm. but I think it's more people are not okay than you think. Not, and that doesn't mean all the time, but like, even if you're going through a spout and tough times, like, for me, it wasn't like dark days my whole life. It's just, you know, there would be spurts of it. And I wish I would have had, you know, the courage or not the not the fear of, of talking about it. I wish I didn't have the fear of saying that. So just knowing that it's okay to not be okay and, and, and ask. So it's, it's taking away the barbaric part of it, I think, is what... Mm-hmm. To, I don't know if that answers your question or not. But if I'm no, thinking no, about this scenario, it's like... You don't have to do this on your own, man. <laughs> like, or mm-hmm. or a girl. I mean, I'm sorry to speak. It's it's a, everybody. It's not just men. Um, mm-hmm. Any athlete or anybody going through it, it doesn't have to be on your own. Anytime you get through problems, it always seems when you team up as a, you know, as when you make it out of a teamwork, it gives you such a better feeling of connection. It gives you a better feeling of support and you know so trying to do it on your own you usually wind up falling on your face you know so it's just knowing that it's okay to get help and and have a support beam not everybody's gonna if you tell them hey i thought this today they're gonna say you're a whack job get the hell away from me Mm -hmm. you know what i mean the fear part of it 
that would help. And knowing that there's no repercussion of of not being okay. Mm-hmm. God, they're doing well though. I mean, I seen. I think it was in the NFL last year. A guy had to sit out because he's having tough anxiety attacks. I remember. I remember hearing the coach talk at the presser, and I was actually really happy about how the coach talked about it. You know, he's going to take his time and get to back to where he needs to be before he gets back on the field. That's great. Mm-hmm. It lets people know that it's okay. Mm-hmm. It happens. I mean, I didn't. I didn't choose anxiety and depression. It really. I mean, I, nobody chooses it. <laughs> yeah. No, anxiety <laughs> sucks. It's <laughs> brutal. So it's yeah. like that's not really. You know, when you, yeah, when you make dumb decisions and you do dumb things, like, you're kind of asking for it, right? Um, with these kind of things, it, nobody asks for them. So it's it's not to be blamed on them or faulted or shamed. It should be, how can we help you get out of it? And, and I think it's starting to get that way. I think it's moving. Obviously, it could be a ton more work, and that's why I'm involved in trying to help build those bricks and knock down certain walls. But um, I think it's coming a long way. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think, you know, like you said, there is a lot more work that has to be done. But if you're to look, you know, look back, you know, 10 years or so, 20 years, like it's, it's, t- it's taken miles steps forward. So it's, um, it's, it's great to see. And so Rob, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time today and for, you know, answering all my questions and honestly, and in detail. And um, again, about opening up about, you know, some of the struggles you had as a pro athlete, because obviously, you know, uh, pro athletes are kind of seen as superhuman sometimes you know people may think they don't go through struggles or you know they get paid so much money that you know why would they have any reason to be sad and I think a, I think you did a really um, a really good job of helping humanize these issues and, and bringing to light what um, what you know people go through you know because athletes are people so thank you for that and do you have any closing messages that you'd like to share or you know um, is there any way people could get in contact with you if Maybe they were struggling with their mental illness and they needed someone to talk to. Yeah, I can give you my email for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, social platforms as well, Twitter or email for sure. Those would probably be the best ways. Um, our shrimp at vetasport.com or dot pro. Sorry, our shrimp. I don't know my own email. <laughs> <laughs> our shrimp at vetasport.pro, and then mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter at, at Rob Shrimp. Um, social platforms are open, so that's somewhere they're comfortable um anyway yeah absolutely so that I, once i wrote a post and it, it all kind of came through twitter and uh social social media facebook stuff like that so and try to answer as much as i can and and give insight on as much as i can fantastic well again rob thank you so much for taking the time and um it's, it's been a pleasure of mine i appreciate it buddy thanks for having me well there you have it that's episode 17 of method Life podcast as always i appreciate your support please be sure to like subscribe, and share the podcast with someone who you feel may like it. And in saying this, also please be sure to check out my Instagram page, at Staden underscore Mental Performance. I share some videos on there, some tips, and I like to interact with everybody too. And on top of this, your feedback is always appreciated. I like to know what everyone else is thinking. Some things I do that you enjoy, some things you think I could work on. By all means, let's hear them. Anyways, until next time, this has been Taylor Staden with Mental Dive. Have a good one and stay safe out there.